know, maybe to people around you in groups of twos or threes. So my first question is, how would you live if you knew you were going to die in exactly a year, right? So October 2020, you're for sure going to die. How would that change your life and maybe how you work, play, do family this year? And then secondly, if you knew you were going to win the lottery in five years, how would that change your life? Okay, so look around you. Make sure, you, make sure no one around you is left out. I would love for you guys to talk of, uh, through these questions. And we'd love for you to meet someone for the first time as well. All right, any, anyone have like a cool answer you want to share for your friend or for yourself <laughs> on either of these questions? Go ahead and yell it out. Stop going to school. Why do anything tedious if you're going to die in a year, right? Why do anything that pertains to over a year of your future? So that's, that's cleaning my car for me. <laughs> anyone else? Oh, we got a cool music playing back there. All right, it's awkward to share in front of 150 people. But um, man, if I was going to die in a year, I would spend a lot of time with Liam, with my family. I would probably cut my social circle a lot smaller because I want the people that mean something to me to, um, to have my time. And then I think about if I were to win the lottery in five years, I mean... I would still keep my job, you know? <laughs> I, I love doing what I do. Maybe Nina would cut down a bunch of hours. We would probably just not worry. I mean, we have really good credit, so I would just get like 15 credit cards and max them all out, you know? And we would just live super, like we would for sure get that Disneyland pass we've been eyeballing, right? We would for sure go to Paris. We would for sure, and we would do that within five years. We wouldn't have to wait. You know, when I think about um, our future, our belief about the future affects our present action. And if we're certain about the future, there's a certainty to how we live now. But most of our future is uncertain. And so there's an uncertainty to our daily life, how we live week to week or month to month. But knowing our future can become an obsession. And we see that all over our society and probably in our personal life as well. Right? If you invest in stocks, all of stocks is about the future, and everyone's either really scared about the future, recession's coming, go buy gold, you know, we have a reverse yield curve, or they're super optimistic about the future. And if you research stocks, most of the time you get people from both ends commenting, which is super confusing. When they are in agreement, it's already too late. And then there's uh, maybe a recession coming that breeds fear. It makes us think differently about whether we buy a house or not, how we take out loans. We think about the political future of, of the U.S. and how that would affect us, right? If um, Elizabeth Warren took office, she wants to decentralize like Amazon and Facebook and, you know, I have stocks in those companies. And then also tech. We envision this world through the lens of tech. And there's things that we're really excited about. If you're into, like, I, I, I listen to the podcast, The Future of Everything by the Wall Street Journal, and they talk about CRISPR all the time. It's this uh, gene editing tool that people play with in their garages and made me want to buy one, right? You could make beer that glows in the dark and stuff like that. But it's also amazing because there's so many species that you could accurately edit genes and then put other genes into to let's say, fight off genetic diseases, 
China has an institution where their vision is to up five percentage IQ points every generation for the Chinese across the board through genetic editing. That's scary and beautiful at the same time. When we think about tech, there's a company rolling out autonomous vehicles in Las Vegas. Their, their target is in the next year or two, and they, it won't have a steering wheel, right? It won't have brakes or gas. My son might not know how to drive because it's become irrelevant. And so when we think about the future, we spend a lot of time in it. Why? Because there is a way in which we live our life in account for the future. And that's what makes Matthew chapter 24 so interesting to me, because he talks about the summing up, the last chapter of human history. And if we are serious about his words, if we believe with certainty the ending of this earth and the way that Jesus kind of wraps up this chapter of human history, it affects how we live day to day. It's not just something distant. It's not just something disassociated from the way I live now, but it informs my purpose. It informs the way I use my time and energy. It's connected. And so we're looking at Matthew chapter 24. We've been on the book of Matthew for about two years now. And the Matthew is knit together between narratives, Jesus and how he lives his life, and discourses, what he's teaching to his disciples and the crowd. And so we are on the last discourse of Jesus, and then we'll move into the last narrative, which is his death and resurrection. In this last discourse, he talks about eschatology, uh, the end times, how it's all going to end. And before we look into this passage, we're, I'm going to give you this chart, and I would love for you to take out a journal or your phone and try to replicate this chart. Because over the, this lecture and the next couple months or weeks, we're going to refer to different points on this chart, different events in the last uh, part of human history. And it helps you have a chart in order to orient yourself in what we're talking about. And I think it's super fascinating. Uh, there's a lot of different versions of this, or four primary schools of thoughts. If you want to read on different uh, views of the millennium, you could buy this book, Three Views on the Millennium and Beyond. I had to read that for seminary. But I'm going to give you the one that I ascribe to, and then you know, different theologians will move it around in different ways. So Jesus comes, let's say 3 or 4 AD, dies at uh, 36, and then he refers to 70 AD multiple times. In his parable the last few weeks, he's talked about 70 AD. This king gives out invitations. People reject him, kill his servants. He's inviting people to the banquet. A lot of other people come. But what happens to people that reject him? He sends armies, right, to uh, take away their power. Or we have the owner of the vineyard loaning the vineyard to different tenants. They're supposed to give uh, rent to the owner. But instead, they kill the servants, kill the son. The owner, the king, sends an army to kill them and to take back the vineyard. All of that is ref in reference to 70 AD, where the temple is destroyed and the Jewish religious system comes to a grinding halt as the church picks up. Then 2,000 years of church history, starting with Acts all the way to Renew Church. So we're on that timeline, 2012. And then the little kind of dotted line is a break in the timeline, meaning I don't know when the rest of this is going to happen. But from our view, again, not totally 
like, I'm not staking my life on this, but 80% sure it's going to happen this way. 72% sure it's going to happen this way. But most of all of these events happen. It's just kind of the order in which, again, different theologians will place them. So first, we have the rapture. That's when Jesus comes in the clouds, and it's the first resurrection where everyone who believes in him, in the moment of that happening, and all the saints and believers who have passed are resurrected and given new bodies and meet him in the clouds. And then the tribulation happens. This is where the Antichrist rules and reigns the earth for, some theologians will say, seven years. And during that time, God is also judging evil and judging the Antichrist. And so you can't buy or sell unless you get 666 on your forehead, on your wrist. Do you guys watch any of those movies? And, um, and the earth is in total chaos, reigned and ruled by the Antichrist. After that, Jesus, with, he's in the clouds, and then him and all the saints, all of his believers come and they invade earth, and they destroy the Antichrist, take away his power, and God, uh, Jesus imprisons him for a thousand years. And during that thousand years is the millennium, or the thousand-year reign of Christ. And this is what I'm looking forward to the most. Um, we get to stay on earth, and um, we have physical bodies. We can still visit Newport or some version of Newport, some version of Corona del Mar. But the earth is made in the way where we've always envisioned it to be. If, you're, if you read politicians or philosophers or religious leaders, they have a utopia, right? Even, Mark, even Karl Marx had a beautiful vision of, of a selfless world. And I think maybe us in fifth grade or sixth grade or in college, we all envision some type of world like that. And it begs the question, why is a perfect God creating a world that has famine and war and cancer? And the answer is he doesn't. He creates a perfect world in Eden. Sin comes and causes all the pain and destruction. And this millennium, this thousand-year reign of Christ is Eden 2.0, the world as we hope and want it to be, but better. No pollution, 50% of the U.S. income and uh, federal spending doesn't go to the army, right? What does that look like if we had 50% of our budget redistributed to education, to, to tooling people, to uh, infrastructure? That alone would change the face of the U.S., but we can't because someone will invade us, right? Or what does it look like for tech companies to not have intellectual property, but they build off of each other's knowledge? What does it look like for Jesus to reign? to sit on the throne, and for our leaders to be like Christ, who will sacrifice and be humble and lift up other voices. The thousand-year rule of Christ, we all have perfect bodies. We all see him, and it's the way the world was meant to be. But what's also fascinating is that there's non-believers uh, that live in the thousand years as well. Again, this is kind of per my seminary school of theology. And at the end of the, so where are they from? They're from the tribulation, right? So tribulation happens. God judges uh, the Antichrist and all of his followers. A bunch of people die. Jesus comes and invades the world. A bunch of people die. But not everyone has died who doesn't believe in Jesus. And so they're also living 
in this thousand-year reign. And that's why at the end of Revelations, we have Satan being released at the end of the thousand years, and he deceives people on that earth. And they rebel against Jesus again. But this time, it's like you can point to him. Isn't that crazy, right? That like an atheist now would say, I don't believe in Jesus. I'm like, well, I can't really have him sit in front of you. But atheists in the thousand years, I'm like, Jesus is right here. Go ahead and touch him, you know? But there's a difference between believing Jesus exists and wanting for him to be king. And that's what Satan's deal was, Lucifer's deal, when he was seeing God face to face. And so it happens again. The armies around the world gather against Christ. There's this huge standoff, if you think about, like, return of the king, right? And um, before the war even begins, God annihilates that entire army. And then there's the judgment day where Jesus sits on his great white throne. Um, everyone's resurrected. The believers are already alive. The dead are resurrected. And that's where we get the concept of heaven and hell, the eternal state, where God pronounces those who want to be with him um, and are accepted by him to be in his presence in heaven, where love and peace and joy reign. And then there are those who have always hated Jesus, have never wanted his reign and rule, has always wanted to depart from him. And that's what hell looks like. It's the absence of God. It's a dual rejection of the person rejecting Christ and Christ rejecting the person. And when you're completely absent of God, which no one is on this earth, everyone here gets common grace. They, get, they understand what love and peace and joy is, even if they don't believe in God. In hell, it's a complete separation from God. And so when you don't have joy, all you're left with is depression. When you don't have community, all you're left with is isolation. When you're absent of love, all you have is hate. And that becomes the eternal state of both the believer and the non-believer. All right, so um, when we look at Matthew chapter 24, he speaks, Jesus speaks to 70 A.D., and the tribulation kind of interlaced together. And then at the very end, he speaks about the rapture and his second coming. And we'll be talking through those verses. A very little antidote because I have so many passages to cover. And also, personally, I just think it's fascinating because it's about the end of the world. So if you're falling asleep, then I, I have nothing left for you. Okay. Uh, oh, last kind of theological framework. So the whole timeline is this framework that I want you to be able to put things into from uh, Matthew 24. The last framework is probably the most fascinating thing I've thought about for the last forever. So there's a prophet, right now it's Jesus. He sees a prophecy, and um, there's a portion in Matthew 24 where his prophecy has a multiple fulfillment, or it's fulfilled twice. First in 70 AD, and then in the Great Tribulation. If you took notes on the timeline, you'll see where those two land, right? And 70 AD is really like a miniature fulfillment of the greater tribulation that is to come, but it's fulfilled twice, multiple fulfillment prophecy. And what I think is really amazing and possibly true is that the prophet takes on the vision of God, and his vision, one of the ways he sees time is in a singular moment. And so he so that's why the prophet speaks in one description 
of multiple moments. Okay, you don't have to think about that. So Jesus left the temple and was walking away. For, we're finally on the passage with his disciples coming up to him to call attention to its building. Um, Pastor Dave spoke so well on the temple being the centerpiece of Jewish life. It was what they put their ethnic, national, and religious identity upon. It was a symbol of all of those things, a culmination of it. And so as the disciples are leaving the temple, they're looking back at its splendor and saying, Jesus, isn't this amazing? And then Jesus says, "Um, do you see all these things, he asked. Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on on another. Every one will be torn down. What a precise prophecy. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, this is his last discourse as he teaches through the next uh, few chapters, the disciples come to him privately. Tell us, they said, and they asked two questions. I think they think it's going to happen in one period, but it's actually separated. When will this happen? Question one, talking about the destruction of the temple. Question two, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Okay, so we're looking at this in two parts. So, but they have overlap. So fake signs, Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There, are, there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings of birth pains. So when it's talking about birth pains, it's actually kind of like a woman who has a contraction and thinks she's in labor, but she's actually not. Or it's false signs, people who think that Jesus will come because of a famine or earthquake or war, but it's not true, right? I was at uh, a corn maze, and it said, exit here, and it, it was like four different arrows to different, like, it was really funny. And that's what this is about, right? It's all these things that will fake people out to think Jesus is coming. I remember in high school, um, my church was super into, like, the signs of the end, end of the age, and every world event was, like, indicative of Jesus coming back. And we actually didn't read this correctly, because we saw wars and earthquakes as Jesus coming soon, where he's saying that they're actually false signs. What's the true sign? Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold but the one who stands firm in the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. I think the most reliable sign of Jesus' coming is that the whole earth will have heard the gospel, that every corner of the earth, the gospel will be preached. But that's correlated to persecution, Throughout Christian history, we see how persecution allows for the spread of the gospel. Even the first church in Jerusalem, it was in their persecution that believers spread around Asia Minor and churches were planted all over and people heard the gospel. When we think about 
uh, communist China, missionaries had come and shared the gospel with many people in China, but it was actually when the missionaries got kicked out and the church went underground that the gospel spread all around that country. And so in persecution, we see the kingdom of God being preached around the world. And that might be the most sure sign of Jesus' coming. Here's the part of the passage where there's a Uh, overlap between 70 AD and the tribulation, and we'll try to pull it apart a little bit. So when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation spoken through the prophet Daniel, Daniel has this whole kind of eschatology in his book as well, similar to Revelations. Um, Let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. And then there will be great distress, unequal from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. Truly I tell you, this generation will not pass away until these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. We skip a few verses there. But I want to point out that he says this generation will not pass away in reference to 70 AD. So 66 AD, about 30 years after Jesus dies, the Jews, there's the Jewish revolt, and they basically buck the Roman Empire. They take over Jerusalem. And then General uh, Titus is sent from the Roman Empire to retake Jerusalem. And during that time, he overthrows the Jewish militia and ends up up wanting to take the temple. He wanted to preserve it, but one of the soldiers set it on fire. And once the temple was burned, the soldiers were so eager to retrieve the gold, which melted, and had flowed into the cracks between the stones, that they overturned the huge stones of the burnt-out buildings to retrieve the gold. Remember that first prophecy that Jesus entered this whole passage with? He says to his disciples who are marveling at this temple that not one stone will be left on top of another. And we have um, Jewish and Roman historians bearing witness to that very prophecy. And Jesus has resurrected and ascended for 30 years now. So there's like a timestamp on that prophecy. This generation will not pass away. And it's super detailed. And we see that fulfilled in 70 AD, which is astonishing. And then we think about the carnage that happens as well. Uh, About 100,000 Jews were enslaved. About a million died by slaughter and starvation. That's significant. And when Jesus gives this prophecy, you see his heart breaking for the Jews. You, you remember him riding in on the donkey to Jerusalem and weeping over it. You think about him praying and asking other people to pray for women who are pregnant, for the season in which they can flee so that they're not breaking Sabbath laws. And I think the people who took his words seriously were able to escape possibly the destruction. Have you were sitting in front of Jesus as a disciple 
uh, as someone who believed him as a prophet, and you heard this, and you knew that in your generation, you experienced that kind of chaos and destruction, maybe you pack your bags and move away. There was a severe warning here. But also, it translates into the great tribulation. Again, after the rapture, tribulation, then second coming. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for the day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God and is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Here's another passage in Revelation 13. People worship the dragon because he was given authority to the beast, and they worship the beast and ask, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to rage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. It was given power over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. Sorry. Uh, whose name has not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. And so this prophecy that Daniel has, that Jesus um, reiterates, is that after Romans took over the temple, they worshipped their idols there, they blasphemed it, and then that's repeated in the tribulation where there's great chaos and carnage and the Antichrist steps into the temple and again blasphemes others and has people worship him. And then lastly, we see Jesus' return. As a, for as lightning that comes from the east is visible even to the west, so will be the coming of the Son of God, the Son of Man. Wherever there is carcass, carcass there, is vulture, uh, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in the heaven. And then all the people of the earth will mourn, for they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from the end of the heavens to the other. So here is a beautiful picture of Jesus rapturing his church. Some theologians put the rapture and the second coming, the landing on earth together. So in, our, in my theology, I've separated it. But the last part is the rapture, him gathering the saints. And then the first part is him landing on earth. And the sun and moon and the stars, some commentaries will say, when you get to Revelations, there's a lot of different perspectives. I, th I think we'll know when we get there, and this is the perspective I've come to. Anyways, um, the, the sun, moon, and stars are representation of the earthly powers that have taken um, hold of the earth, so they all fall in the face of Jesus coming in to take authority and reign on earth, and that's why everyone's groaning, because they worship the Antichrist. They're, they want him to reign and rule, and then they see Jesus coming, and they are terrified. 
And then Revelation 20, verse 6 says, Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection, right? That's, again, the rapture when Jesus brings all of us back to life. And um, in, other pas- in later passages of Matthew, he'll describe it as like two men are in a field and one will disappear. Two people are walking down the world- road, one will disappear because they're being raptured to Jesus. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And so as we live this life faithfully, we get to reign with Christ in the next life. Jesus has always partnered with us. And here, in this moment, he's partnering with us to allow his kingdom to be tangible, to allow people to hear his gospel and to choose him as king. In the next life, we don't really have a choice. He's sitting on a throne and super powerful. I think there's beauty, though, in the faith that we exercise in this moment of choosing Jesus where that type of faith is unnecessary when he's sitting on a throne, right? That when we worship here, it's to the stage and and music. And when we worship there, it's to Jesus sitting on a throne. And all of the creation, all of creation is gathering, worshiping in perfect harmony together. It won't be that hard there. He'll be in all his glory and I'll see him hitting my knees I don't think there's many other postures that make sense. But here we grapple at focusing and envisioning him, at loving him, because there's a hiddenness about God. But I think that the faith we exercise in reaching at him, in believing him, in submitting to this invisible king and living out an invisible kingdom glorifies Jesus in a unique way that we're not going to be able to do in heaven. One of my favorite stories is when Jesus visits his disciples after his resurrection. But Thomas wasn't there. And so Thomas walks in. He's like, what's up, guys? You know, and Jesus isn't there anymore. And they're like telling him, dude, he resurrected. He came. We spoke to him. We saw him, you know. And Thomas doesn't believe. And that's why we call him Doubting Thomas. And as he's arguing with the other disciples, Jesus shows up. And he says, Thomas, touch my scars. Put your hand on my side and believe. But then Jesus says some, another phrase. He says, blessed are those who do not see and still believe. And I think he's saying that to each of us. I didn't get to touch his scars. I didn't get to see him face to face. But there's a blessedness in the faith and the belief that we exercise that I think carries over to this other kingdom. You know, when I think about this passage and uh, as I'm sitting under uh, Mark Sosi in Revelations, he reminds us that this is primarily a pastoral passage, that it's not primarily about timelines and charts, but it's about our hearts and how we follow Jesus. And I think these are some of the things that I took back as immediate encouragement for future certainty, right? First is that Jesus wins. Isn't that cool? Because there's moments in human history where we would severely doubt whether Satan and evil takes over. If I'm sitting there in Europe during Nazi Germany and Stalin uh, Russia, I would not be certain that Jesus wins. I would not know, I would not 
not that I wouldn't be certain, I would not know without these passages about the end times if we win. It kind of looks like we're going to lose. And I think sometimes in this life, it feels like we're going to lose. It feels like evil is going to take over. Or we're, we're on the losing side. Christianity starts to deplete in our society, and we become post-Christian. And Jesus says, don't worry, you're on the winning team. That at the end of the day, I reign and I take over. And all of your sacrifice, all of the martyrs, all of the persecution that I lay out in front of you comes with a purpose, right? That, and that purpose will be fulfilled in me. None of it will, will end up dissipating. I've been following Hong Kong and all, and all of the protests, and if I were honest, I, I'm rooting for them. But 20 years later, maybe no one will remember their sacrifice, or people will remember, but it had made no difference. And there's something to be grieved about putting your life on the line, and your, the difference is kind of trampled on. But here, whether we sacrifice for Christ because it's demanded a, of us out of persecution, or whether we sacrifice for him because we get to gift it in America, Jesus is saying that it's lasting and eternal and meaningful. I loved going through this passage again and, and re remembering kind of the smallness of my life. When you take a look at that timeline, you realize that your life is just a sliver on it, right? There's this, I'm going to go kind of nerdy on you, but um, if you've ever read The Fellowship of the Rings, and then, and then there's this other volume about kind of the whole history of The Lord of the Rings. And those three volume sets of The Fellowship of the Ring all the way to The Return of the King becomes like a little sliver in that four volume set. And I think what the author is trying to do is to say, that even this story, as significant as it is, pales in comparison to the larger story. And we can easily look at our life and, and center ourselves around it. We can easily look at this world and, and feel like we're the most important character, that our dreams and our truth and what we want to pursue is all that matters. We can get sucked into kind of the, the worst parts of our life. And then when we take a step back and think about Jesus' reigning, the millennium, the eternal state, and how the gospel is to reach the whole world, I think it gives us context in how to live again. It gives us meaning that saying that, man, I want my storyline not to end when I die, but to be a part of something so much bigger. I want Liam's purpose to be tied to the purpose of Christ because all other stories end abruptly and are forgotten, except for when we plug our stories and our purpose into this great story and great purpose. And when we believe and know it with certainty, we can live this life and our purpose with certainty as well. If the Bible didn't tell us how it's going to end, we would live with angst, right? We would live with with peril. We live with speculation. But um, let's see, Chris was telling me about D&D and how his, his sons complained to him about plot armor, right? What plot armor is, is like when you, if you watch a movie and you know the character lives, nothing else he goes through matters, right? If he gets the 
crap beat out of him. It doesn't matter because you know the ending. He's going to survive it and win, right? That's what plot armor is. You know that this guy is going to make it. You don't get plot armor in Walking Dead or Game of Thrones or any horror movie, right? Anyone could die at any time. But, when you, but I love superhero movies because most of the time they have plot armor. And what understanding eschatology means, the end times, is that we get plot armor. That we can move through the trials of this life and stand firm. We could see the church being burnt down in China and pray and love it and ask for revival because we know that God's kingdom is still going to live and rise in China, in Hong Kong, in the Middle East, that his kingdom is always expanding and Satan can never push it back. We get plot armor in this life because we know how it ends. I wonder if if we've wrestled with that certainty and if that certainty has translated into the purpose in which we live, into how we approach our days, into how we spend this life, that we would be people who share the gospel. We would be people, marathon runners, who have the finish line through every pain and cramp. We know where the end is, and we know what we're moving toward. My prayer for Renew is just that, is that as a community, we, our lives would matter, that we would spend it on things that matter, that ultimate re, ultimately Renew isn't just about you, right? It's not just about your friends and how happy you are here. It's like, are we moving this mission forward? Are we sharing the gospel to, to locally and abroad? Are we allowing the kingdom of God to be tangible? Like at the event tonight, where we love on people who have special needs, May, would we adopt foster kids, and orphans into families? Will we see God's kingdom laid out on the dinner table where we host people who have no homes in our homes? And will we tell people of this great reign of Christ that is coming and how they get to be a part of their, his, his kingdom? He invites them in. Father, we're, we come to you this morning and we take a step away from our busyness, from our agenda, from the grind, and we ask that again you would be king. King in this life and king in the next. And we thank you so much for how everything ends. There's no way I would want this story to look but the one that you've already written. And I pray that all of us would be a part of it. Could we just start to ask how... Do we believe in this future? And if we do, how has it played out in the course of our life, our purpose, our objectives, what we care and want most? I would love to give us a few minutes to think about that, and then I'll lead us into communion.